2: beautiful Jamaican woman at some point came up and put her hand on my forehead and on my shoulder and she because I was just freaking out nobody was talking to me and she just started to whisper to me she's like baby girl I don't know what you're going through or what awaits you on the other side of this plane but I want you to know that everybody's praying for you and God is with you and you are not alone and so I want you to slow your breathing down baby girl and I want you to decide who you're going to be when you land.
0: All right. Welcome back, everybody. We're here for another episode of Comeback Stories. And today's guest is Kelsey Chittick. Kelsey's a writer, comedian, and inspirational speaker. And over the last 14 years, she's performed stand-up comedy all over LA and speaks at events around the country. She's also the co-creator of Keep On, an inspiring and humorous podcast that explores how our greatest obstacles can turn out to be our greatest gifts. Welcome, Kelsey.
2: Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm actually really excited.
0: Great to have you on our show. So we always just dive right into your story. We want to know for you, can you walk us through what growing up for you was like?
2: Uh, Sure. It was awesome. I was one of those people who had what I guess you would say like a charmed life. I mean, I had lots of resources, lots of love. I grew up in a little town in Florida called Winter Park, Florida. We're right outside of Orlando. My dad was a lawyer. My mom was heavily involved in politics and environmental issues. And I had an older brother and life is good. I mean, we had money issues here and there or things that came up. My dad drinks too much. My brother has a titch of a problem, but, you know, that was just like in the background and I was a swimmer my whole life. So I pretty much focused on sports and then I ended up going to University of North Carolina and swimming there and I met my husband there. He played football. So unfortunately, it was, it was a, I wish I could tell you it wasn't, but it was a exceptional way to grow up, honestly.
0: How do you feel that that way of growing up and having that solid foundation is has shaped who you are today?
2: Uh, in every way, I mean, my fam- my family was really spiritual. So my mom was listening to Joe Dispenza and Tony Robbins, and you know we were practicing Buddhism and meditation. And my mom was saging our house when I was seven; like she was way ahead of the game. She was doing Tai Chi. We sat and and we did singing bowls and it was always important. My granddaddy was really spiritually evolved. So we grew up in the South where everybody was like kind of fundamentalist Christian. My best friend was Jewish, but my home was filled with like, you get to choose what your faith is. It's just got to come. It's got to end in love. However you get there. And actually my mom, my parents got divorced. I guess it wasn't my parents. My dad left when I was 15 and my mom kind of went on this self-help journey. And I just remember she had books everywhere and she was meditating like two hours a day. And so I grew up with a lot of tools around like getting ready for this event, kind of. Um, and my family is, they're very, they're very supportive of whatever it is that brings you joy. So there's not a lot of judgments. There's not a lot of like, I don't know, I can't explain it. But I think my upbringing allowed me to write the book and walk through losing Nate in a different way than most people would have. So, I don't know if that makes, if that's the answer. If that's what you're going. Yeah,
0: for, yeah, you're I mean your parents were way ahead of the game.
2: Way, way. My mom. Sorry, dad. You're not even close to ahead of the game. I love him, but <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't his jam, but my mom, I mean she she was broken and she just dove into every spiritual practice. She did yoga at home, we did all of that stuff, um which I thought she was weird growing up and now I mean my kids would be like, "Weird, you're weird." But it it was a great gift when this hit because this was a big one.
0: Can you talk about in your earlier years, childhood or teenage college years, like an early memory of pain that you have?
2: I mean, I, I wish I could, I, I, you know, this is what I talk about sometimes, like it really was a good life. I didn't struggle like that. Um, like a lot of people do. I didn't have, life was good. I mean, I had a lot of family around. My brother was, had struggled quite a bit with drugs and alcohol. And my dad is, you know, he's a functioning alcoholic. So not really present, but not nothing like nothing compared to what a lot of people have been through. It wasn't until I had kids and then until this that I felt like horrifying pain, like in fear and anxiety, my anxiety and all my stuff started once I had kids. And once I, and then as life went on and I got older, my anxiety kicked up. And then a couple of years before Nate died, it was like through the roof. Um, but. Before that, not as much. It didn't start early for me. It started in my late thirties.
0: Who would you say your your first real teacher was?:
2: Oh, my granddaddy. My granddaddy. He was just like, "Baby, you know, like God is everywhere. God is love, however you get there, but we're all connected. It's all okay. We all came here for a reason. You know, you have everything you need is free. You have oxygen, you have water. You have love. I went to the church Nate and I went to when we first moved out to LA was Agape with Dr. Beckwith, and uh, my granddaddy just was always he always was like you got everything you need inside of you to to heal and to be who you want to be. So, I mean, he was everything. And I married Nate because Nate was a lot like him, um, a big football player, but super spiritual and super different.
0: It's amazing because traditional. Usually with older our grandparents, great-grandparents, there are a lot of um, fixed beliefs, a lot of lim- limited thinking just by default. So to have that kind of wisdom from your granddaddy at that time is, is such a gift.
2: Yeah, we, we all went to different churches. My dad went to a Catholic church. I went to a Christian fundamentalist church because all my girlfriends wanted to do like fun in the sun or whatever Christian camps you go to in the South. And then my mom went to like a Buddhist temple, and everybody was allowed to go where wherever it spoke to them, and that's how it is with my kids too. Like we all find like we've all grieved differently, we all find faith differently, and you know I, I don't know that that's I think it's becoming more normal, but I don't think that was true 25 years ago. Nate too. Nate's parents. Nate's dad is a uh, was a, ha- a campus minister at Harvard, and Nate's mom is a religious ethics feminist professor at Holy Cross, but they are the most open minded they all meditate they are, they all done a, they've served a lot and Nate really came from that side and um he was a much better person than me so i learned a lot from him too i mean i met him when i was 19 all he wanted to do was serve and show up for people and basically just use football to get people to pay attention and then he just used that platform however he could
3: that's amazing i mean that's that's all that you know i try to do with my uh, yeah that's what I mean, that's what i'm here for
2: exactly yeah we're all given a vehicle and and how we decide to drive it and where we decide to drive it is our choice, you know, but we all, we all come down with a set of things. And I think Nate loved playing football because people would just automatically respect him because he played football. And then he'd be like, Oh wait, have you heard about God? (laughs) they'd be like, what? We want to talk about the Super Bowl, And he's like, that's so boring. You know? Yeah. But then I'd see him talk to like a baseball player and he'd be like, what was it like to win the world series? I was like, see, you could be a super fan too. Like it just, whatever you don't know, you're excited about, but
3: Right. I love how you, uh, dove into, you know, what faith means to you, because I know in this next part of what we want to talk about, I know that you had to have a strong faith. So I want you to, uh, take us to November 11th, 2017. And what were the days like leading up to that light like, and just take us through what that process was like for you to heal?
2: Yeah. So, um, about two years before Nate died, I started to have this like feeling like something was off. And, um, I think you all know that he, he died of a cardiomyopathy of his left ventricle. He's a lineman, big guy his whole life. And then he was diagnosed with CTE stage two, three post mortem, which, you know, I don't know if, I don't know what I was picking up on the two years before, but he wasn't the same. I could just feel it. And I think everyone's an intuition, but a woman's intuition is pretty good. Like you just don't know what it is, but something told me to get ready, like start paying attention. So long story short, those two years I kind of went on my own spiritual journey. I ended up reading a book called The Code of the Extraordinary Mind by Vishen Lacchiani. Phenomenal book. Just kind of turns every belief upside down and has you think again about why we believe what we believe. Um, gave it to Nate. And then Nate gave it to Tony Gonzalez, who's one of his best friends. And I do the podcast with his wife. And somehow, long story short, there was a retreat in Jamaica that we were invited to. Tony and Toby were going to go, but Tony had to play. And so they offered him to uh, his wife to take a friend. And Toby's one of my best friends. So I left on November 8th and I didn't want to go on this trip. I was afraid something bad was going to happen. I had all this anxiety. And Nate was like, listen, lady, like I'm over it. Like I can't live with you. You're stressed all the time. You're stressed about the kids. You're stressed about work. You're stressed about money. Like just go and figure out what you're supposed to do in this life. Like you have so many gifts. Go, we're going to be fine. So I left on a Wednesday. He drove me to the airport. Just kindest goodbye you could ever hope for. Um, I spoke to him in Miami in the, on the layover. I mean, not the layover, the connection. And then I had like the next three days of my life were probably the best I'd had in 20 years. Wim Hoff was the speaker. Stephen Coltler was speaker, Marissa Pierce. And we just like dove in with people that wanted to do better and do more. And then the last day was uh, Saturday, November 11th. And, um, we were about to go on our last event and, um, my phone rang, which I hadn't had my phone with me most of the time. And it was, It was like a phone I didn't know. So I just like didn't answer. And then my best friend called and I didn't answer. And then my best friend's husband, who was my husband's best friend, called and he was like, call us ASAP. And so I called and my girlfriend just said, hey, listen, um, Nate took the kids to Sky Zone, which just so you know, like the chance that my husband would get up early on a Saturday was zero. So that's a whole nother spiritual experience. And he took them to Sky Zone, which is a trampoline park. And they jumped around and my son said that like he had trouble checking in, like there was like a digital check-in and he jumped a couple of times and, um, and it will let me back up. I got, so then I just started to pack up and I was like, guys, I have to go. I knew right then everybody's like, oh, he might've had a seizure. We don't know. He's at the hospital. Your mom's going to get him. The kids are, the kids are there. Someone's going to pick him up. Just enjoy the boat ride. And I just knew in my soul, like he was gone. And so I got in a taxi cab and on the way from the hotel to the airport in Montego Bay, my mom called and the the doctor said, you know, I'm so sorry. Uh, This always gets me, you know, I'm so sorry, but he's, he's gone. He's dead. And I remember being like, who's dead? And they're like, Nate's dead. And that was, you know, I, I always say every there's, everybody has that one phone call that takes you to your knees. And that definitely was mine. So it turns out he had had a heart attack there. And the kids didn't know, really, they, you know, they saw him and they tr- they thought he was joking. And then people came over, they gave him CPR, he got defibrillated, and he died about 45 minutes later in the ambulance.
3: Wow. I know uh, in the in the title of your book, uh, in, in the title, you have uh, surviving loss and finding magic. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wonder what, how did you, how were you able to survive? And then how were you able to develop or gain some meaning from those circumstances?
2: I think early on, I talked about this in the book. You know, on the flight home, I was I was I like was insane. I was so scared, I've never been so scared. And I knew my kids didn't know yet. And I it was just like you know, it's like in the movies, it's surreal. And I was dry heaving on the plane, and I nobody was talking to me. You know, you know, you know when you sit on a plane for like a long ride, you're like, please don't put me next to like crazy woman that needs Xanax or something. You're like, Lord help us. So everybody was like, God, she must have gotten broken up with in Jamaica. Like, she drank too much, and then this. Beautiful Jamaican woman at some point came up and put her hand on my forehead and on my shoulder. And she, because I was just freaking out, nobody was talking to me. And she just started to whisper to me, She's like, Baby girl, I don't know what you're going through or what awaits you on the other side of this plane, but I want you to know that everybody's praying for you and God is with you and you are not alone. And so I want you to slow your breathing down, baby girl. And I want you to decide who you're going to be when you land. I mean, what? And Honestly, in that moment, I was pretty clear that my kids had lost Nate, who was, when I say the most exceptional human being, like he was a different level. I was like, they're not going to lose me. Like we're going to, we're going to figure this shit out. From that point on, I was, I was very clear on what my goal was four years from now, where I am today, which was to stand here in front of my kids and say, like, the best way to honor dad is to live the biggest, most joyful, most passionate life the way he was. And so we fought for that pretty much every day. The beginning, the first two years are just effing brutal. Um, and you're just, it's surreal. It's like a natural disaster. You don't, and, and I just didn't even know what to do, but we just did it. And I, I did, a, I practiced hard. I'd meditate probably an hour a day, which people are like, when do you make time? I'm like, oh, it's the most important thing I do every day. I mean, it is what I do. And I do yoga five times a week because it's the only thing that keeps me from crazy. And I'm right on the, I'm right on the edge of crazy. I mean, right there. <laughs> I miss one yoga class or if I don't sit two or three times a day, I can really get, I can get anxious. I can get really fearful. I can lose my way. I can create, my brain is not a safe place. That's kind of it. I mean, we still fight for it. It gets easier because now it's, it's our habits now. You know, my kids are the same. They're not, they're, they're, they think I'm weird, but that's good. That's fine. One day they won't.
3: You know, one thing I did want to say was in the book, uh, I read about, uh, there was one moment you said when your daughter came into the kitchen and, you know, you were t- still kind of torn up and you said, <laughs> you said you were like a meth addict. Yeah. You talked about, uh, Yeah, you guys like played like a Bob Marley song or you told...
2: Yeah. Everything's going to be all right.
3: Yeah. I just felt like that was amazing. And it's just like for, for people that don't know what it's going to look like for them to come out of what they're going through, just... Something like that, how that can lift your spirit and propel you forward. Because a lot of people just feel like they don't know how to get started on turning their life around. Yeah. You know?
2: Yeah. I think it's just like little choices each day. Little tiny and, and and practices. I think a lot of people don't realize like you just have to do it until it stops feeling weird. It's Meditation feels weird until one day you go, oh, my God, this is home. This is where I feel at home. But in the beginning, you're like, "Ah, oh, this is awful. Like you're you're looking at the timer opening one eye, like six minutes, seven minutes. Same with yoga or same with, you know, we dance a lot here. We move a lot. There's a lot of moving. There's a lot of crying less now than there was a couple of years ago. There's a lot of therapy, lots of different times. I mean, I've floated in tanks. I've done trauma therapy. I've done, my kids saw him die and that was unfortunate, but we laugh a lot. We make fun of it a lot. We're like, who would die at a trampoline park with orange sticky socks on? Like only dad, you know, like we lighten it up. Like it's just, you know, this whole thing's got to be, it's so heavy that you've got to find a way to laugh about it. And I think we do that quite
0: a bit here. What would you say like was your absolute lowest points from the loss?
2: I think about a year after I was just like, shit, freaking love that guy. I don't know how, I I really want my kids to have a dad. So about a year after when the logistics of death and just kind of you're on all the paperwork's done, all the memorials are done. And then you're just like, what the hell happened? Like, how did I get here? Like, how did I get here? A widow at 40 with a nine and a 12 year old. And I was so mad. I was so, I didn't want it to be my life. I wanted him to come back. I wanted him to fix it. And I think there's a chapter in there where I talk about, and I talk about it seriously, but also with humor, because that's how I talk. But I just was like, we can't do it without him. So I talked to my son who was 12 and I was like, I have to kill you. I I don't know what to do, but we all have to go find him. And my son was like, but what about all the positive affirmations you've been telling us? And what about how we're supposed to be so grateful he was our dad? I was like, I lied to you. Like, I was kidding. It's bad. And we just laughed and we just, but there were some really dark, the nights with the kids are the worst. And I talk about that too, because I was not prepared for their pain. And if you're a parent, especially in this day and age, you're always trying to fix everything for everybody. And the great lesson for me has been, I, I can't save my kids. I can't fix it. So I it took me about two years to figure out how to support them, which was strangely just sitting next to them, not saying a word, which for me is hard and for most mothers is really hard.
0: Can you stay on the topic of just the the importance and the power of grief and being in that practice? I just, as you're sharing this, what comes to mind is multiple people that I know who have lost their lives from addiction or mental health or suicide. And at the core, the core wound was because of a loss in their life that I don't believe that they fully ever breathe. So can you just touch on that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think I told you all Nate's brother is um, 13 years sober. And so he's worked a program and he was, I mean, just a hot mess for most of my first 10 years with him. But together, he and I, we, we really believed from the beginning, we were going to sit in the awful. And we, we sat in it and, and our kids sat in it. And the miracle of sitting in it is it passes through you. Right? So what we were just committed to, I mean, I, and a lot of times my kids were like, please stop crying. And I was like, I'll stop crying when I can. But until then, I got to keep going. And I'm so sorry. It makes you uncomfortable. You don't have to sit here, but I cannot hold it in because it felt, for me, grief was very physical. It felt it felt everywhere in my body. It felt I, I think at one point I say I felt like I was on fire. Like I couldn't settle. I couldn't get comfortable. I couldn't find my I couldn't find a place where I could breathe, you know, and I like my breath would only get to here. It was just it was like a constant panic attack. And um at some point and I just gave into it. I was like nothing, just be with it. And actually when I kinda leaned into it, it would it would disappear. So I started to really practice just when those waves would come, I would just be, and people would, we'd be out or I'd be in a store and I just kind of like let it go. Whatever it was, if it was a big cry or, you know, I just needed to sit down or I needed to scream or I needed to just say, fuck this shit, motherfucker, you know, like whatever. And then I don't care where it was. I just was like, fucking want my husband back. And I just, my friends really learned to just sit there and like wait. They'd be like, there she goes. And then. I, it would, I could get back. I could be here again. And now those times, those waves are much farther apart and much smaller. But in the beginning, they were like freaking tsunamis every hour, but we didn't miss a minute of it. And I think that's why I'm so joyful now because it feels like I, I lived every day of that grief. I mean, it was bad. It wasn't pretty for a while.
3: I feel like there's one way I can relate to you. I feel like that through grieving and through pain that. We've been able to find purpose in our lives. And I know that for you now, it looks like writing. It looks like stand up, it looks like a lot of things. And I want to know, like, how did you, when did you know that you wanted to do something like that? And what did it look like to get into those fields?
2: It's a great question. I I always love to write. I've always loved stand up, but stand up, I didn't love it so much because you had to get it right and there was no back and forth. So I always would do a set and I'd love it, but I'd feel like, God, you got to get every word right. People don't realize how hard it is. Like there's nothing improv on stage. And I always dreamed of talking about something. I just never knew what it would be I would talk about. And I do remember feeling like I wasn't qualified to talk to people because I hadn't had anything happen that made me know I was strong. I mean, I I had all the tools because I grew up in a family that talked about this stuff, but I had never tested anything. So this experience kind of naturally gave me an opportunity to go I know what I love which is writing and talking but now I finally get to write about something that is really meaningful as opposed to just you know making jokes about being married to a football player or you know marriage or stuff like and so I just started writing right away when he died I just I mean the book is basically built out of journals just the experience and just for the first time in my life not playing to the audience but just writing it authentically has it happened and letting Norm, old Kelsey would have really cared what everyone thought. I'm honored that people enjoy it if they do or they get something out of it, but I'm mostly glad that I told the truth, which for, I think a lot of my life I was playing. i played play to the crowd. i played whatever I would do. I would do it because I'd want people to like me. This is the first time in my life I'm like, this is it. And it feels so good.
3: Yeah. I feel like that's like real freedom at the end of the day.
2: 100%. When
3: you, when you try to play to the crowd, there's There's 7 billion people in the world, (laughs)
2: Right, person
3: out there that's not going to be feeling it or have have some kind of issue with it. So that freedom is, I mean, that's like the epitome. Yeah. I want to know, like, what, are you grateful for that freedom? Like, what are you most grateful for?
2: I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm on drugs. I've never done drugs, but I feel like I'm on, them compared to the pain of the last four years. I mean, I feel with the book done, for me, it feels this great relief that his story has been told, so I don't have to carry it all. I really wanted people to know Nate. He was really special and he was a great dad. And I wanted my kids and my grandkids to know the story. And I wanted to to know the pain was that it was documented because it was brutal. And now that it's out, I have this great sense of like relief. That's way, I always say like, I feel like I'm more here now on planet Earth. Like before life was just like me, it was like this deep. Now it's like the pain has been way down here, but the joy is way up here. And it And these times really suck still. And they're worse than anything I had before it. But I also know if I waited out and I just experience it, we're going to, I'm going to cycle back. So life feels more bright. And, you know, it's, I, I always think Nate's like, sorry, I had to die for you to like get woke. But, you know, um, this was just the only, I don't know. I just didn't get it until now. I didn't get the beauty of it all. I didn't get the ups and the downs. And I just was numb. I was like, just kind of organizing closets and taking people to school and. Super grateful, but um, super self-centered.
0: I want to go back to something you said that I caught that was really powerful. Now that it's out, where if you go back to even the book, but before the book, the journaling and the power of journaling, where I believe journaling is about getting out what's inside of you, because if you don't get it out, it eats you up from the inside out. So to our listeners out there, for someone that maybe doesn't have a journaling practice or doesn't understand the benefits and the the positive byproducts. Can you just touch a little bit more on the power of writing and how that gave you a sense of freedom and, and allowed you to get out what was eating you up on the inside?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I write every day, Um, and not like you have to, like oh Kelsey, if you don't, you're a god. But it's I think I say it's the same thing I feel about meditation. At first, I started to do it because I wanted to, then or I thought I should, and then I wanted to, and now it's I have to. It's not a it's a non negotiable for me to get things on paper each day. And sometimes, and I mean, now I'm getting like, not as diligent about pen to paper because I hate my handwriting. And sometimes I'll dictate it into notes and then send it to an email. I just has to be, it has to be written down somewhere that then I can go back and look at it. But yeah, I mean, writing writing things down is the great gift of handing something over to something bigger than you, whether it be the paper, the table, the room that you're in, the person you share it with. And then it also, I mean, the beauty of it is you see your growth and you go back and because, you know, I barely even remember the girl that came home from Jamaica. She was broken. And I, I'm like, because I feel so much better now. I'm like, did I ever feel that awful? And then I'm like, oh, wow, you opened that journal from like November 18th, 2000. You're like, that girl was bad shape, you know? And it's a really, it's nice because then when hard things happen and tough things have happened since then that I didn't want to happen, there is, you kick in and go like, wait, let me, I remember that girl, she made it. This girl can make it. And you start to have, there's a habit to, to your, to your mindset now going like, yep, been here before. I've got this. So things just get easier to hold a little bit lighter. You kind of lean into it and go, okay, um, I'm okay. I remember that because I wrote it down. That's the gift of journaling for me. And we all forget so much, so much hard things we've been through. I think they're, they need to be honored, just like the, the good times, you know,
0: you also have a very solid meditation and yoga practice. Can you talk about the benefits and the bad? of those two practices for you and how they've helped you f- heal?
2: I mean, meditation for me, that's it. And I, I've i meditated, you know, I started doing yoga maybe when I was 19. But, you know, there's a difference in doing yoga and doing meditation and having a meditation practice and a yoga practice. And I've just got that in the last four years. There's a difference in sitting every now and then when you think I should meditate. And that's all good. we ha- That's where we all start. There's some day where you're so desperate that it sinks in so big and so deeply in your soul that you go oh my god this is peace this is this is where this is where i come home to i used to try to get really excited about things like if i had a podcast with you guys i try to get excited i'd like look about it. now i go sit for 15 minutes so i can settle that's a whole different ball game because i'm a talker i'm really energetic so i used to get fired up now i like turn everything down before i do anything which is so counterintuitive but meditation for me now, I mean, it is the first thing I do. I do Sam Harris's app in the morning, um, waking up. I love his voice. I love the way he talks. I do Insight timer throughout the day. And then at night, and then probably once or twice a day, I sit for 10 or 20 minutes just in silence, which was so hard for me for years. Um, I had to have something in it. And if people are new to it, always start with something in your ear. It helps you. Start with music. Start with a mantra. Start with someone talking to you. But when you get to where you can do it silently, that's bliss i mean i it, it's been the great joy of the last four years that practice and then yoga for me emotions need motion you got to move so i walk like a like a lunatic so i walk all over the neighborhood everyone's like you walk a lot i'm like i walk to stay sane." so i walk i listen to podcasts but i have to move not like a soul cycle class not like a barriers where people are yelling at you you need something like rhythmic that's calm you know that's what people need um and I think we don't do that quite enough. So yoga is a big part because when I'm stretching and moving my body, everything's moving out. The grief's moving out, The all, whatever's stuck and there's a lot of stuff stuck. And um, that keeps me healthy. There was a lot of trauma. There was a lot of pain that came on pretty quick and your body stores it. So yoga has saved me there. But I'm actually the happiest I've been in my life.
3: I love how I love the diligence and just that staying in touch with that sense of desperation. With your practices, usually I I'll ask uh, if you could go back and tell your younger self something. What would you tell them? But I want to kind of change that today. I want to ask you, what would the person, the version of you that was at rock bottom, be most proud of? Who you are and what you keep today?
2: Oh, I'll cry thinking about that. Just that, like she made it. You know, I, when you grow up with an easy life, where you're kind of blessed and like life is simple, you don't like you're what you're hiding is you don't think you can handle anything. So you look at people that have. Hard childhoods or hard lives and you're, and they've made it and you're inspired by them because you're like, shit, I couldn't do that. I couldn't survive that. And so you walk around feeling like, although you have this great life, you might not be able to handle what comes your way because you've just never been tested. And I definitely think that was my experience. I think losing Nate just blew my world up. I mean, he was, he was my person and that I'm here now and I, and I made it and my kids made it and I ushered them through it just. Based on what just the things we've been taught and, and they're okay. They're actually great. And I think that that's what, that's what blows my mind. That's what I would say is just, I'm just so grateful that I'm here because there were days where I was like, I wasn't built for this. You know, I'm not, I don't, I don't know how to do this and, and I don't like it. And I don't, didn't ask for this and I'm mad and I don't want this to be my story and I'm pissed off. And yet here I am and I feel just, more alive than I have in a long time. Actually, it's kind of cheesy, but it's true. I'm like a walking bumper sticker.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, our listeners probably heard, have heard me say often that it's it's not the event that happens, it's the meaning we attach yeah. to it. You're a living example of something so tragic to happen in your life and to attach meaning and by, um purpose through the unbearable pain that, that we've been through to see how you, found meaning and found your voice and are able to help others. I mean, I'm so inspired just by hearing this. Another saying that I I say often, me and Darren both say, is that the only story that matters is the one we tell ourselves. Yeah. So what do you like going back? Like, what was the story you had to stop telling yourself so that you could really start to write the comeback story?
2: Yeah. I actually have a chapter in there where it talks about that. You know, when people would ask me how I was doing, I'd be like, well, we're doing it. You know, he died, he love, And I had this whole narrative that it was like just on repeat. And then one day my daughter was like, why are you saying that? She's like, we're doing much more than just doing it. She's like, we go to counseling. You make us do positive affirmations. We talk about dad, we cry, we scream. She's like, "She's like, why don't you change the story? And I, I always believe, you know, we don't have a lot of choices about things that happen to us, but we have a huge choice on how we deal with them and how we define them. And, and a lot of that is with the words we choose to talk about things. So at some point I was like, why am I telling this bullshit story? I don't even, because I didn't really know how I felt every day. And people ask me all the time, how are you doing? And you're like, who knows? I don't have a clue. I'm barely standing right now. But what I did know is that the story that I wanted to tell that was true to me was, I married the most amazing man. I met him when I was 19. I had 21 years with just a badass dude. That was, it was an honor to be his wife and to have his children. He died earlier than expected and we miss him terribly, but I wouldn't change a thing because it was worth all of it. And that became the story that I shared as opposed to what I thought people wanted to hear, which was like about the grief or whatever. And once we started to live in that, there's pain all around, but that's the truth. Like it was, I loved him and we had a great life and he was a great guy and he died early, but he, he changed the world in his own world way, you know, and. I think that's helped us so much as opposed to saying the alternative, which is like, it's awful. He was so young. was he? I don't know. was was young old for Nate? I don't know. it was it's forty two that was probably when he was supposed to go, I assume, or he wouldn't have gone. So you know, I think that's the power that we all remember at some point that we have, and then that we just have to make the choice to start to to believe that narrative and then to share it because what you speak becomes your truth and your truth becomes your reality.
0: And I heard you say we wouldn't change a thing, which to me, and I, and I believe you, like I, you're owning that, which is a direct reflection of the work that you've done to get to that point. And I'm just curious if you've had people in your life when you've said that to them and they kind of questioned that, you mean you wouldn't change a thing? Do you, yeah. did you ever get that? Do you get that kind of objection yeah. back you?
2: Well, especially when it comes to football, um, because he died of CTE, I've you know there's some chapters in there just about the risks of concussions and what players are going through. And a lot of my most favorite people in the world are NFL football players. And Darren, I know you are one. And there's the most amazing men I've ever met in my life are football players, good men, really good men. And um, when I wrote those chapters, I was afraid because I didn't want to negate the good parts of it. But But that's the one area where I get tripped up because what I've tried to explain to people is I wouldn't do anything different because I I wouldn't have known Nate if we didn't go to UNC, if we didn't, he didn't play football and I didn't swim. And our life went on the way it was because of football, because of the choices we made. So I don't know that you can look back and change one thing because you don't know what that domino would have, it would take you on a whole nother path you don't even know about. So I wouldn't change anything because this is the life I'm in. There's, I don't have any regrets. I don't, you know, if people ask me, what, what do you think would Nate have played football? I said, I can't answer that for him because football led us to his children and to our life. Would I, would he not have wanted to die and not see his children raised? A hundred percent, you know, but how do you unwind a life that everything's so connected? So I, truthfully, I, I don't have any change. My son's not going to play football. That is where I, I'm at, obviously. And he understood that. And everybody that we love in football understood that. And you know i'm going to work i i'm going to work to talk to people about not putting kids in helmets too young let them just play flag for a long long time and then when you are a man and you decide then you go ahead but you know those are the simple changes but i wouldn't no i wouldn't change anything and i i don't i i like i said i spoke for nate a lot when he was alive so i try not to do it for him when he's dead just to be a cool wife you know <laughs> i'll let I, I i'll make stuff up when he can't say it because at least when he was alive he could be like she's lying so i don't i don't speak for him on that
0: well, we know there's, there's people listening to this podcast that have suffered the unbearable loss that you have. What would you say to, to that person that's struggling, that's kind of stuck in the pain, but doesn't know what to do about it?
2: Um, find a community, find people that will, will, that you are held accountable for, that you find laughter, that you find people that will sit with your pain, but also it force you to keep moving. And keep getting better. Surround yourself with people that are joyful, that are bringing you up. Move your body. Find some faith, and just know that like everything changes. So where you are today doesn't isn't going to be tomorrow. It just and you don't have to do it all. Just each day, get up and do one thing a little bit better than you did the last day. And just find support. I mean, find support. I think if you get, find a community, whatever it is, whether it's be in recovery or in grief. You can handle a lot when people share the pain with you. When you spread out the pain, other people carry it with you. So just keep going. It's it's It, it does get better. It just simply does. God makes it that way. Time heals. People get better. Things change. It's just it, that's true. How you get there is directly up to you. So just go to work.
3: Those are amazing words. I love that you double down community. And that's the way we like to end the show. Uh, All right. With, uh, a comeback story shout out to the people. That have been there for us through our journeys, through our pains, through our struggles. So, who would you give that comeback story shout out to?
2: Wow, God, there's so many people. My town, my little town of El Segundo, California, they showed up in ways that are it's hard to describe. I mean, I always say if, if your husband dies, you want to live here. This is the place to be. People show up. They bring food. They bring tampons. They bring gift cards. I mean, you you name it, they're there, and they don't they don't quit. And we're we're right outside of L.A., but it feels like we're in Iowa you know, these people are exceptional. My high school girlfriends who have always been my best friends. And then Nate's football and his coaches, Coach Vermeil, all are all, everybody that we've ever been in the NFL with, they've showed up. Nate's friends from Allentown, every single high school friend, just, there's so many people that have carried this pain with me that it's a no wonder I'm doing okay because I didn't have to do it by myself. This is the whole world. Thank you, God. Lord have mercy. All the people that are praying for me on the plane that I didn't even know about. Yeah.
3: We appreciate you being here and being so honest and open and just showing people how you can turn your experiences uh, into something positive and still be a light for the world. So we really appreciate you being
2: here. Thank you. You two are awesome. I've I've been reading about you guys. Super impressive stuff. Really good work you guys are doing. I mean, we need more of this.
0: Yeah, Kelsey. I just want to acknowledge you also for the way you've shown up and turned your pain into purpose. I mean, this is, you are the essence of what we're talking about from a comeback story. So mm-hmm. um, it was an honor to hear yours. Stay in the work. You're Thank changing you. lives. That's why we're here, right? It's its a beautiful thing and we can't do it alone. We got to do it together.
2: Yep. We're all okay. We're all okay. We're doing it. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. It's great to meet you.
0: You got it. We're out, everybody. Peace. This is what I represent,
3: staying true till I'm six down It might take a little bit, but every king's gonna get crowned